Welcome to the Breakout Ideas Podcast, the most recent addition to the Breakout Investors Network. This is the inaugural episode, and what we're thinking about doing with the platform is having a forum for discussing themes that move the market and therefore should be of interest to members of the community. Today's topic is how should investors view the setup for 2022? We have the tailwinds of uh, likely end of the coronavirus pandemic running directly into the headwinds of a less accommodative Federal Reserve. Joining me today to talk about these topics and actionable themes for investment is Rob Spivey, Director of Research at Altimetry Research. Altimetry is a research firm focused on giving cleaned up accounting analytics and investment ideas to individual investors. Altimetry is powered by Valens Research, an investment research boutique whose analysis is read by all of the top 10 largest institutional investors in the world and 70% of the top 200 asset managers in the world. Rob, how should investors be thinking about 2022 as we get a start on the year? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Scott. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and flattered to be on your inaugural, uh, inaugural podcast. It's exciting. Yeah. Uh, it's a great it's a great question. And, um, you know, both our clients on the institutional side of things and our clients on the individual side of things are, you know, quite frankly, constantly hammering us on it as we turn into the new year. The, you know, when you look at it, the biggest thing that's on everybody's mind right now is the idea of where are rates going, right? And so what are rates going and what does that mean in terms of what we should think for the market? So in our view, we're incredibly bullish for the market for 2022. And part of the reasons why, quite frankly, is because of rates. Um, so with that in mind, if, are you cool if I kind of jump into something that I'm, that we're looking at right now from a rates perspective? Absolutely. Let's talk about rates and then, you know, we'll, we'll segue into some other issues, you know, the uh, reopening trade. Uh, and, um, I believe we're going to, we're going to talk today a little bit about the capital equipment investment cycle. Absolutely. And so I'm going to start by showing one of the most busy slides that you'll probably ever see anyone show ever in your life, which is this slide right here. I love and, it already. Um, what this is showing you right here, which is really what jumps out to us and why we're so bullish is, you know, this, um, this gray line here is the Fed funds rate. And so what we're highlighting here in these red boxes are every single time the Fed funds rate started to rise, right? When the Fed started raising rates, because what does everybody do? Everybody does what's happening right now. The Fed starts to talk about raising rates, the market panics, the market sells off. The Fed first raises rates, and every single time the Fed raises rates, the market sells off. Just for context, right? In 1994, Fed said it was going to raise rates. Uh, so Fed started raising rates. Within two months, the market was down 7%. And now you can imagine what that does, right? I know that a lot of people in your community care about microcaps. We all know that microcaps inherently have a massive beta to the market. So if that's where the market's going, you can imagine where microcaps went. Similarly, back in 2004, when the Fed started raising rates, market tanked six to seven percent and in 2016 market takes six or seven percent in the first, in the next like you know month to three months that's what happens but what's really important to us is not what happens in the first one to three months because in our view it's a buying opportunity and that's when this really busy yellow line happens here what this yellow line is showing you if you bought, bought that, day, that day whatever day that is it's showing you in essence here's what's going to happen for the stock market the next 12 months. If you held it, here's what would happen. So for instance, what you're seeing right here is right, it's basically saying for the next 12 months, the market was flat. Here, we're saying the next 12 months, basically right, if you draw a line across here, the market was up 20%. 
12 months after just basically if you do if you bought 12 months after the first dip then the market was up 20% over the coming 12 months if we look over here right back in 2004 we can see the market was up 10 to 12% um, right after you if you bought right after if we look here right after the fed said it was raising rates the market was up 15% in the next year and you can see the fed raising rates as we can see from the persistence of these yellow lines doesn't cause the market to crater or cause the market to tank and that's what's so important because of what everybody's stressed about it doesn't cause gdp growth to decline this orange line it doesn't cause the market to tank for the next two for the next 12 months 24 months because it doesn't force a recession the reason why the fed raises rates is because the fed is saying the economy is great and when the fed is saying the economy is great the fed is saying hold on you know we need to actually put in some control rods here to slow down the economy because it's going so good and so well. That's why we're raising rates. Raising rates doesn't cause a recession. Raising rates doesn't cause the market to go into a bear market. When rates get too high after six, eight, 12, whatever it is, rate hikes that you get to, that's when you see a recession. That's when you see the market roll over. And in fact, when you see the Fed raise rates, it's one of the best buying opportunities in a bull market. That's where we think we are right now. So interpreting this busy slide if i'm reading it correctly the market does tank going in to the actual increase in rates uh, i guess what, what what we've seen over the last uh gosh this goes back 30 years is the fed telegraphs that it's going to raise rates and the market sells off in anticipation yeah, it's, there's a certain level of, I mean, when the market in anticipation of the Fed raising rates, it's kind of, it's a coin flip in terms of the market sells off or not. But what we do see like right now is what, what we're kind of experiencing. And it's what we experienced in terms of the, the taper tantrum, right? Back in 2014, 2015. Um, but what we see is consistently, if you just look at a one month to two month to three month window, right after the Fed raises rates, you always see some sort of short dip five ten percent in terms of the sell-off and when you do it's a buying opportunity and that's what's so interesting okay all right so this is a theme that people have heard consistently they've got this chart now which should should be the proof uh of the thesis okay so great we are now in a what are we down four or five percent right now uh, as as we turn the corner on the year and uh, everybody anticipates, I guess the current is four rate increases this year. Is there any way to tell where we are in the cycle? Should we expect a little bit more down before the run that accompanies the strong economy, which is the reason for the rate increase? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, is the market going to end up being down 6% or 8% or 9%? That's not really the business that we're in. So it's tough for us to say. Uh, for us, the more important thing, and this is what, like I said, we tell both our institutional and our individual investor clients, it's buy this dip, right? I mean, it doesn't doesn't mean you have to go all in at 5% down, but, you know, be buying as the market drops because you will not regret it in a month, in a, in a year's time, I should say. All right. So I guess the big question, and I know this is the question you get asked all the time, how do I know that this isn't the beginning of an even bigger dip? Occasionally, the market does really tank. What causes the market to tank? And do you think that those factors are uh, evident right now? Absolutely. It's a great question. And what I, what I can do is, you know, I can jump into the market phase cycle, which is what we call our macro framework to really think about this. When we look at 
cycles of the economy and cycles also not just of the economy, but of the stock market over the last 150 years, if not further back. What we come back to time and again, Scott, is the idea that what really matters is credit cycles, credit first and foremost. And right, Scott, so what's really interesting is when you actually look at it, we think that there's one thing that matters um, for, first and foremost, if we look at 150 years of market cycles. Uh, and it actually, the best way to distill it is from a quote, uh, and it'll actually get you there, which is the idea of there is nothing new on Wall Street, and there can't be because whatever happens has happened before and will happen again. This was said in 1924, and the guy who said this in 1924 was this gentleman, Jesse Livermore. And um, if you don't know who Jesse Livermore is, Jesse Livermore is arguably one of the most well-respected traders of all time. Uh, you know, many people have his memoir, um, which he wrote under a pseudonym, um, uh, Remnants of a Stock Operator, back in the 1920s. But what Jesse Livermore said in 1924 was really interesting. He was talking about the idea of if you can find patterns in market cycles, those patterns in market cycles can actually tell you where you are. And the most important pattern, which is the one that Jesse Livermore focused on, is the credit cycle. It's really, Jesse Livermore's story is a cool one. Uh, it's an unfortunate one, a sad one from the Great Depression. But before the Great Depression, in 1929, he perfectly timed when to short the market, spot on right. He actually made in one trade in current US dollars over a billion dollars. It was it was arguably before Ackman made his trade on CDSs in 2020, where he actually uh, bet to short the market and he made over a billion dollars on that one trade. It was the single most successful trade ever. And the way that he was able to do it, just like he, by the way, had in 1906 also, was because he basically went and he went to banks and he said, hey, is it easy to get credit? That was the only question he asked. He cared about the credit cycle. He said, is it easy to get credit? Because I know if it's easy to get credit, the market is doing well. And then what he would call the bank and he would say, hey, can I borrow a million dollars? And the bank would say, um, yeah, you can, but rates are rising. So right, you better actually make sure to borrow your credit now. He would borrow and actually the market would go up, the economy would continue to go. The only point where he knew that credit was going to crash and that meant that the market was going to crash was when he would call up and he would say, hey, can I borrow a million dollars? And what would the bank say? The bank would say, yes, you can put a million dollars in our bank and pay 10% interest and you can borrow that million dollars. Now, Scott, that does not to me sound like you're borrowing a million dollars. That sounds like you're paying somebody 10% to invest your million dollars on your own. And that was what he was paying attention to. And so when you wanna understand when is the market, could it get worse or could it not get worse? The first thing to focus on is credit. And every single thing that we look at from the credit cycle, all the things we look at in our market phase cycle to understand credit, all tell us we're nowhere near a big issue for credit in terms of what we're seeing from our market cycle. We look at things like, when are we seeing debt maturities come due? In terms of, are we at a point where we actually need to worry about companies being able to refinance? We're not seeing any issues there. Corporate debt, three to four years out before we see any real issues. We also look at things like, what are we seeing from the, uh, the availability of credit from banks? The Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey is what it's called, the sluice. The sluice basically is the Fed going out and recreating what Jesse Livermore said. They said, hey, tell us if you're making it easier or harder for companies and for individuals to borrow. And what we're seeing now is banks are making it easier for you to borrow credit than at a faster rate than they ever have. Right? Now, is it's this just because of... 
Is this just because of the Fed easy money or has even in an easy money environment, the business community been much more disciplined in this cycle? It's been historically in terms of how, not just how easy money is, but historically in terms of how fast banks have eased credit after the pandemic. So after the Fed basically took away the punch bowl the first time, right, stopping PPP and stopping Main Street lending, um, right, then banks actually came out and said, we're open for business. And the reason why was because bank balance sheets right now are so healthy because the fact that if you look at consumer default rates, consumer um, burden in terms of credit burdens, corporate default rates and charge off ratios, all those numbers are all actually very, very low right now coming out of a recession. And so because of that, banks have great balance sheets. So banks are making it easier for you to borrow. And also the, um, the credit markets are too. If you look at you know, high yield credit, uh, investment grade credit, crossover credit, as we talked about, you look at the cost to borrow for pretty much any company across the board, it's the lowest it has been anytime other than the second half of 2020. It's lower right. than it was in 2014, 2013, easy, easy credit. And that means markets are open. And that means you don't have to worry about this leg down becoming something a lot worse. Okay, we're probably getting a little bit too deep into it, but I can't help, I've got to ask, if the Fed starts unwinding its book and all of that debt flushes back into the marketplace, rates are gonna go up and it will become harder to raise capital through borrowing, or at least more expensive. What do you think about the impact? And that's what's so important coming back to right this slide here in terms of looking at what we're seeing from this chart, the Fed raising rates is not what caused the recession. And the Fed stopping, right, borrowing, uh, basically buying money that the US government is issuing isn't what causes a recession. It's when interest rates get too high. And the really important thing is not just when interest rates get too high, it's when you also look at debt maturities and debt maturities are coming due and people don't just need to borrow money to drive growth. People need to borrow money to refinance that you get in trouble because what happens is, you know, back in 2006 or back in 2018, everything that we were worried about in 2018 was that there were debt maturities for corporations, a big debt maturity headwall, meaning a lot of debt coming due all at once in 2020 is what we were looking at in 2018. And we said, wait, hold on. If interest rates stay this high, it's going to be hard to your point, Scott, for companies to refinance and refinancing, not being able to actually refinance or pay down your debt. That's what causes debt destruction. That's what causes credit destruction. That's what really actually is a catalyst for a recession. And if we've got no debt maturities coming due that are material for US corporates or US individuals in the next two to three years, there's just nothing that's coming there to make us worried. All right, all right. So um, you know, maybe we'll come back to this uh, if we wanna go deeper on the subject in a, in a future podcast. But I think for this podcast, what we should do now is rotate over to the equity side and I use the word rotate because I'm thinking about the, the so-called so rotation with uh, money theoretically coming out of the money losing technology sector, the uh, ARK investment uh, ideas, and potentially mo moving into, uh, how did I hear it uh, recently? Things, if you dropped it, it would, you, you would hurt yourself. Heavy metals, industrials, materials, uh, resource plays, commodities and the like. Um, is such a rotation what we should be looking for, where would you be putting your money right now? I think you're exactly right, Scott. I mean, the real thing that happens when you see the Fed raise rates, which is important, is like I said, the Fed is signaling something significant. The Fed is saying the economy is doing well and the economy is heating up, right? We're seeing real sustained growth. And so we're trying to basically 
turn that curve from being like this, because that means you go like this, to turn that curve to be a bit more steady. And what that means is we've got, we've got growth across the board. And that's when you see these right high multiple tech companies, these secular growth companies, they actually take a back seat. They take a back seat to cyclicals because of the fact that the cyclicals are there and getting more, everyone's getting more bullish about them because their earnings growth is accelerating because the economy is doing well, right? The Fed is raising rates because this is accelerating. The Fed isn't trying to squash it and isn't going to squash it for one, two, three, four rate hikes if it does. And so that's why you're exactly right. We think that this is the time, the time period where thinking about things like industrials, thinking like thing about things like um, uh, commodities are really interesting. Now, there's an exception to this, which is you need to use context. And so right now, when you think about cyclicals, one cyclical people always think of is, right, oh, consumer cyclicals, right? Think things like home building and things like that. And there's this thing that's happened with this cycle. You've, Scott, I know that I talk to you uh, far too much anyways, but you've heard me talk about for two years, the at-home revolution, right? Yeah. And, and so, right, the whole entire idea of the at-home revolution was in, in early 2020, basically everybody couldn't do anything. They couldn't spend stuff on discretionary things or anything else. So all of a sudden what they did was they started putting money in stuff, right? Specifically, and because nobody actually had as much credit issues as they thought they would, people had money to buy homes, people had money to buy stereo systems, to buy cars, everything else. Those arcs of the market, we'd argue that consumer cyclicals are probably more mid-cycle to late cycle, as opposed to a lot of these industrial cyclicals, which is what we think are going to take off right now as the market, as the rates hike, because those are the ones that are actually just now starting to accelerate, which is what the Fed's watching. All right. So give us an idea or two of what we should be looking for. Yeah, of course. Now, before giving you an idea of what we should look at, I am going uh, to take one direction, which is part of the reason why we think it's so interesting right now and why we think industrials are important is because of the fact that they are primed to make 2020 a great year due to what we call the CapEx super cycle. Um, and what the CapEx super cycle basically is, is this idea that U.S. corporates have massively underinvested over the last 20 years. What this chart is showing you right here is net to gross PP&E ratio. What that means, right, PP&E is property plant equipment. It's factories, it's computers, it's cars, it's offices. And when you have a high ratio of net PP&E to gross PP&E, that means you've got new assets. When this number is low, that means you've got old assets because they've been on their balance sheet of all these companies for a long time and the companies have depreciated them. Well, on average, if you look back, not even 20 years, but 50 years and beyond, the average net gross PP&E PP ratio you see is somewhere between 57 and 60%. What we've seen since 2012 is this ratio collapse, meaning assets are getting really old. And by the way, even if you, you know, include intangible assets like R&D, intangible assets like R&D have been scaling, but right, you need, you need actually for all of these industrial things that you need, you still need these new, you still need these assets to be refreshed. And so what's interesting is this drop that we've seen since 2011 has been companies starving their, their selves of capital, of CapEx. And the actual level here is like $500 billion of underinvestment in CapEx that we've seen. And that's actually part of what we think is causing all of the issues that we're seeing with supply chains that have disrupted parts of 2021. And, you know, in terms of semiconductor chip problems, in terms of ramping up any other kind of production that you can think of. And so what we think is, and part of the reason why we think industrials are taking off 
is because of the CapEx super cycle that we think is going to kick off because we think that companies are finally being pushed in a corner where they actually have to invest that CapEx. So this trend down that we've been seeing is actually going to start to be a trend up. And that is a virtuous cycle because right, what happens is if you know Ford wants to build a semiconductor factory, well, Ford and Micron have to partner to buy stuff from Lamb Research. Lamb Research then has to buy stuff from Icor. Icor then has to buy all these little machinery and widgets and everything from what we call America's middle stand. And there's this virtuous cycle that happens with a CapEx cycle that we think it's going to be the first one of those that we see in the last at least 15, if not 20 years. So I just want to give that context in terms of that's why we think industrials are so exciting right now. Am, am I right to be thinking about the announcements about semiconductor facilities being manufactured, reshored in America? Is this the bleeding edge of what you're talking about? That's exactly right, right? I mean, this is just, that is just the first edge of these companies finally saying, we need to invest in CapEx, right? Because and in fact, they're saying, this is the pain point we have now, but everywhere is this is an issue. Now, now there's, 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 a, there's a related issue. Uh, I certainly have heard the investor base very skeptical about management teams and empire building. There's, there's been a real pressure for businesses to milk and return cash on their businesses. How do, you, how do you see management teams overcoming this and actually being empowered to make the $500 billion of investment that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you're spot on, right, Scott? I mean, when you look at this chart, the big underlying story of this is activist investors and consultants, right? Basically beating up management teams and saying, if it's not a return that's above your hurdle rate, don't spend on it, don't do it, right? And so that's been part of what has been starving all of this. But what's happened because of right inflation and everything else is all of a sudden where things are for people's hurdle rates has actually changed, right? Prices being up has actually is actually arguably a thing and that can actually pull demand in. And this is, when you look at it, it's funny. We talk about this idea of everybody worries about inflation right now, but there's really actually two kinds of inflation. There's the Howard Ruff inflation, which is debasing of a currency. And then there is inflation in the sense of a supply and demand imbalance that causes prices to rise for specific things, right? But doesn't actually, it's not writ large inflation. It's not the kind of inflation that causes gold to skyrocket, right? It's not for nothing, by the way, gold is down in 2021 when everybody who is worried about inflation would have argued you should have bought gold. And this the is going to be the the anchor for why people said the inflation was transitory because it was the second kind and not the first kind, even though we had the easy money. That's exactly right. It's because it is the second kind and the whole entire idea of that second kind is all about raising prices enough that we actually have a justification for supply to come in. And now with prices being where they are, all of a sudden, this is a reason why you're seeing CapEx. Everybody looks out and they say, at those prices, it makes sense for us to actually finally invest in CapEx and expand capacity and to add capacity to be able to make all the money that we can from actually adding. And that's the catalyst that we're actually seeing happening. You know, on our earnings call forensics work, right, which is the work that we do to analyze uh, management team confidence, right? We don't just look at balance sheets. We actually look at how management teams communicate. On that stuff, we've actually seen management teams net-net get more bullish in the last, um, uh, really in the last actually just uh, basically three months than we had basically any time other than, crazy to say, June 2020, when management teams were looking at around and saying, we're not going bankrupt and nobody else is actually doing anything, we can make money right now. That's how bullish we're seeing management teams. All right. So you're arguing that there's a very powerful turn that's taking place right now, which is bullish for the economy, bullish for the stock market, 
and everyone will get over their fears and participate in this. And now you must be ready to tell us some of the places we should be looking to participate. I am. I will finally cave and I will tell you some stocks that I like. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the stocks that we like because I'm obligated to hold back some. After all, we do you know, sell newsletters for a living. Um, right. uh, but when you actually look at um, some of the names that we like, and your question, by the way, Scott, before I specifically talk about two names that we think are really interesting, is a relevant one about, hey, you know, management teams have been beaten up for so long about not over-investing and not making dumb decisions. <clears throat> the companies that we think are interesting are not the companies all the way at the end of the supply chain, which are the ones that are, you know, the equivalent in the semiconductor chip spaces, right? Anyone who has ever lived through a semiconductor cycle knows just because the fact that Micron is making money now does not mean that Micron is going to make money in two years. In fact, the fact that they are means they are not going to make money in two years because they, NJ Hynix and everybody else are going to massively expand capacity. The places that you want to play are not there. You want to play one derivative, two derivatives, three derivatives, three derivatives back. You want to play their suppliers or the suppliers of their suppliers and everything else because those are the people who get lasting demand because of capacity and don't have the whipsaw that you have all the way in the end market. And that's when we get into the ideas that we have. So this is Valens Research, the Valens Research app, how we show our, our institutional clients um, the interest, uh, basically how to do fundamental research. And so if I actually just go to Freeport MacMoran, um, so Freeport MacMoran <laughs> is actually an idea that we like a lot right now. And the thing that we like about Freeport MacMoran is it's got a couple different things going for it. One is just fundamentally, if you look at where copper prices, if you look at where molybdenum prices, right, the three big things that uh, they produce are copper, molybdenum, and gold. For copper, which is their biggest, it's like 75 to 80% of their total production. And they've got you know, mines in uh, Indonesia, mines in Peru, mines in the US. The demand for copper has a lasting tailwind right now. If you think about it, it's not just about that fact that we have a cyclical recovery. The whole entire idea of going from fossil fuels to an electrification of everything really requires a couple things. Everybody thinks about lithium and gets so excited about Albemarle. But what it really needs is it needs a ton of copper. If you want to have batteries, if you want to have power, basically electric power driving things, not just cars, but everything, um, you need to have a lot more copper. And so we're seeing a secular demand trend for copper. Like, for instance, I think the, the quote is in 2022, the copper market might be in balance. But then after that, basically the scale of demand is just off the charts. And so what's really interesting is just even before that, before you get about what could happen because copper continues to have massive ramping in demand, right now this year, because of where copper prices are, the last time that copper prices were as high as they are right now, Freeport McMoran had return on assets, the way that we like to looking at companies, of 20%, right? Which is what these bars are showing right here, these blue bars, I'm going to hide these Azure Port metrics, these Azure Port return on assets for Freeport McMoran. Right now, these white bars right here are showing you what the market is pricing Freeport McMoran's return on assets to be for the next five years. The market is pricing Freeport McMoran's return on assets to be at 4%, right? The last time that we saw Freeport McMoran's price of their core commodity, copper, at these levels, ROAs were over three times higher than the market is pricing ROAs to be right now. Now you might say, wait, what's going on with all of these terrible years right here? Well, these terrible years were when Freeport stupidly went out and bought some oil assets because of the fact that uh, Jim Bob Moffat, 
who was one of the leaders of Freeport McMoran, also happened to own an oil company. And basically they caved and bought his oil company out. Well, they got rid of that. God rest his soul, Bob passed away. So we don't have to worry about the corporate governance issue there anymore. Um, but what we see is an opportunity for these are ways to ramp up massively because the massive demand that we see in the long term and also in the short term, the CapEx super cycle we're seeing, because one of the big things we're seeing from the CapEx super cycle is this idea that it's not just that companies are going to spend CapEx. They're going to spend smart CapEx, meaning they're going to want to actually wire their, their factories. So their factories actually have smart data flowing through them that they can see how productive one of their, uh, you know, their piece of equipment is. They're going to want to wire their, uh, their data centers or their offices so that they can actually smartly control temperature and things like this. All these things mean more copper, right, in the short term from a CapEx cycle and then in the long term in terms of tailwinds there. So we think that Freeport Mac brand, which right now is trading at $40, could be worth well over $100 once people start to realize that returns are not going to stay where they were the last eight years. Returns are going to ramp up like they did in the last cap in the last commodity super cycle, which makes it look super interesting. Excellent. Uh, copper happens to be a subject of real interest on the uh, on the platform. Uh, there's um, there's a commodities room where a couple of us have been researching uh, all of the production worldwide, and as you say, mapping out the. The fact that uh, higher prices will bring supply in in 2022, but then the demand will outstrip it and new mines are going to be necessary in the out years 24, 20, 25, if any of the plans for the electrification of the American economy actually go through. As fossil fuels theoretically go down, the demand for copper has to go up. Exactly. And the really important thing for Freeport, which is worth mentioning, is right, along with the whole entire idea of electrification, one of the other big things that everyone is focusing on, pushing companies who are supplying things and, um, you know, and actually uh, investors for companies are pushing on, is this whole entire idea of ESG, right? Whatever anybody thinks of ESG, it is a factor that is directly impacting everything that's going on from an institutional perspective. And in mines, it's a hugely important thing because you've got issues around indigenous peoples, you've got issues around uh, you know, uh, waste and all these other things that people are starting to worry about. Freeport actually, crazily enough, has one of the best records for any of these big miners from that perspective. They've got good relations in Indonesia, um, which they've worked at for five plus years to basically be able to build those good relations after having some rocky relations in prior years. They've got good relations in Peru and over half of their reserves are based in the US. Um, and based in the US at places in the cost curve, that means when those get turned on, it inflects profits up massively because they're low enough on this part of the cost curve that really makes it interesting. So yeah, I mean, I agree, Scott. I mean, just it lines up all there really nicely. Well, that's fantastic. Now, Rob, uh, one of the themes of the breakout investor community is we don't go on and on and on and on. And what I'm going to suggest is rather than go into any more names, that we leave it right here. I think we've got a nice tight package. I think I can do the readout here on the condition that you promise to come back and we do this again maybe in two weeks. Twist my arm, Scott. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. <laughs> All right. Let me find the uh, text for the readout. Uh, I want to remind everyone, this is a Breakout Investors podcast. It is meant as an easy on-ramp to understanding the research and collaboration we do on the Breakout Investor platform, which can be accessed via the internet at app.breakoutinvestors.com or by downloading our mobile app for Andro Apple or Android. The Breakout Ideas podcast is syndicated and available in video format on YouTube and in audio format via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tune in 
uh, give us uh, give us a listen, subscribe, and a five-star review would be much appreciated. Rob, thank you so much. I look forward to the next time we have a chance to talk. Scott, thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. The views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers, not breakout investors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither breakout investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor, no one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.